theyeshiva.net. The story we're going to learn now needs context, like every story, but especially this one. The Gemara there in Tractate Pchoiris discusses a fascinating debate that took place between Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya and 60 sages of Athens in Greece. The sages, the scholars of Athens, Atuna or Asuna, was known as the home of the greatest philosophers of the time. And even after Rome ultimately conquered Greece, and therefore it was under the leadership and under the authority of the Roman Caesar, the sages of Athens, as they were known, were not very um, uh, fond of the Roman uh, Caesar, and they continued to represent the highest of what was available then in Greek philosophy. The greatest sage and debater among the Jewish people at the time was a man named Rabbi Yeshua, the son of Hananya. He was a levy, and he was still from the Meshayrim. The Gemara says in Masechta Erkin that he was from the Meshayrim. He was from the singers in the second base Hamikdash. The Leviim, as you know, would hold a daily concerto in the Beis Hamikdash, in the morning and in the afternoon, when they offered the carbon tomit. And there were many musicians and many vocalists. And Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was one of the great vocalists at the end of the second Beis Hamikdash, and he observed the destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash. He was one of the two students who carried out his Rebbe, Rabbi Yechida ben Zakkai, from the besieged Yerushalayim outside of the city, um, feigning as a corpse, as a dead man that can't be buried in order for him to be able to meet Aspasianus Vespasian, who was the Roman general at the time and later would become the, the Caesar, the emperor. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was in the Beis HaMikdash and then he observed its Churban. He was considered the greatest representative of the Jewish people in terms of many debates that the Jews were forced to have with the people living in their environment who forced them to get into various debates. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was that man. So the Gemara says in Pchayris that the Roman Caesar was probably Adrian, although we're not sure, summoned Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya and wanted he should debate the 60 greatest Greek philosophers who lived in Athens, whom the Gemara defines as Sabi Debei Asuna, the elders of the house of Athens, meaning the greatest scholars and philosophers of Athens and Greece. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya traveled from the Holy Land from Eretz Yisrael to Athens, he meets the 60 sages of Athens, and they engage in a long, complex, and profound debate, ostensibly de- dealing with the basics of Jewish faith, in contrast to the fundamentals of Greek uh, philosophy, Greek mythology, 
Greek, uh, Greek scholarship, Greek literature, etc. The challenge is when you read the Gemara, the whole debate is recorded, but nothing is straightforward. It's all written in riddles. It's all written in riddle-like language. So when you read it, it seems like two children who are fighting with each other. For example, they tell Rabbi Shobin Hananya at one point, they ask him to disprove Judaism when a chick dies while it's still in the egg. The egg never hatches. If you believe in a soul, where does the soul go out from? Because the egg is sealed on all sides. And with this, they try to invalidate Judaism. So Yeshua Hananya says, simple, the same way the soul got in. And that's the end of the debate. The next day, they ask a question. They ask him, uh, um, how do you preserve salt that it shouldn't uh, experience decadence? So Yeshua Hananya says, you take the embryatic sac, the amniotic sac of a mule, and you put the salt in the sac, and it preserves the salt. So they say a mule doesn't reproduce he says, and salt doesn't get spoiled. That's that debate. And so it goes on, more than a page in Gemara, back and forth, back and forth, questions and answers that at first glance don't seem to have substance. And yet here you have the greatest Jewish scholar, one of the greatest Jewish scholars of the time, debating the greatest ph- Greek philosophers at the time, and you try to understand what is going on in this debate. So here is one of the debates that takes place between them. And you see what I mean from this one as well. Zagat Gemara, these are the words of the Gemara. Aisulei They brought to Rabbi Yeshua Mechananya two eggs. Amrulei, they told him. Hey de zaksa uchmase, vehey de zaksa chivras, chivarte. One egg came from a black hen. And one egg was laid by a white hen. But the two eggs look identical, they're white. So they say, which egg, tell us, which egg came from a mother, a black hen, and which one came from a white hen? Of course, there's no way for you to know. There's no, it's not like one egg is black and the other egg is white. So you could say this comes from a black hen and this comes from a white hen. And with this, they are attempting to show how Judaism is archaic, absurd, and false. I see luhu iu tregvini. So Yeshua B'chananya does not remain indebted. He brings two pieces of cheese. Amaluhu, and he tells them, Hey, the is uchmasi? Which cheese was curdled for milk that came from a female black goat? The hay, and which piece of cheese was curdled for milk? The is chivrarti that came from milk from a female white goat. Can you distinguish which piece of cheese comes from, originates in a black goat, a dark goat, and one in a white goat? They say we can't, because of course both pieces of cheese, as you know, are white. And with this, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya triumphs in the debate. And then they go off to another debate. And so it goes debate after debate, all riddle after riddle after riddle, completely eclipsed in enigmatic and symbolic language, which at first glance does not seem to carry any substance, but all of the commentators obviously understood that the Chazal, in a very profound and brilliant way, were conveying the ideas and the exchange between these two parties through these riddles. Whether they communicate, that, and it seems like that's how the debate happened originally, that's why it was recorded that way. Chief among them is the Maharsha. The Maharsha. Meirenu Harav, the Maharsha is Shmuel, Eliezer, Halevi, Edels. The Maharsha is, of course, the most basic 
or one of the most basic commentators on Shas, on Gemara, and the Marsha in his commentary on Chayrus, Chidusha Agodis Marsha, has a long, long, very long discussion on all of the exchanges explaining the symbolism. The Maharal, the Maharal of Prague, also has, in his commentary on Shas Chidusha Agodis, the Maharal also has his own interpretation of these uh, riddle-like exchanges. The Vilnagon has a chibur, a little small volume, that discusses the debates between Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya and Sabah Dibay Asuna, according to his style. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov in Likutei Maharan has a section on some of these stories. Rabbi Yitzchak of Barditchev in Kedusha Slevi has a section on explaining some of these stories. So you have really diverse and fascinating interpretations from various G'dayli Yisrael of different camps and different systems and different ways of thought to explain these debates. And in different svarim, there's different explanations for different parts of the debates. But in the above-mentioned ones, they have it more in a systemized and organized way, although not all of them besides, I think, the Marsha. How do we understand this one? So what I'm going to present to you today, Bezer Hashem, is the perspective of the Marsha. Chidushe Agadis Marsha. It's a short little piece. But in order to, I think, give it full clarity and depth, and bring out the full idea of what the Marsha said, I'm going to change the subject for a few minutes as usual. Let's learn Ashtikal Rambam in Hilchis Tainius Perikhe, the laws of fasts. Zakti Rambam, this is the last chapter of the Rambam's laws of fasts, Hilchis Tainius. Yesham Yomim Shekol Yisrael Misanim Mehem Ipnei Hatzorus Sheiru Behen. There are days that all of the Jewish people fast because of the tragedies, the tsaris, the pain, the painful events that occurred in order to arouse, inspire hearts, and open up the pathways of tshuva, of repentance, of return. The Rambam says this will serve as a reminder, not only to the negative calamities, but to the negative events that they and the deeds of our fathers, like some of our deeds today, which caused all of these, which caused them and us these distressful experiences, and remembering it will inspire, might inspire us to become better. And then the Rambam continues in the second halacha, Ve'eluhein, these are the days that all Jews fast. Number one, Yom Shloisha B'Tishrei, the third of Tishrei, Shibay Nair G'dali B'Nachikam, V'nich B'Gachelis Yisrael HaNishar V'Sivav Lehem Galusat. Gedalia, the son of Achikam, was killed in Eretz Yisrael, and the coal, the last coal, the last embers of the Jewish people that remained after the Babylonian destruction of Uchadnetzar left Gedalia as a general, as a leader, as a leader in Eretz Yisrael. It was uh, destroyed, and the exile ultimately resulted from that, the ultimate exile. The tenth of Tevis, when the Babylonian monarch Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Yerushalayim and placed it in a siege and in a matzik. Matzik is a um, distress, terrible distress. Vishivasa Tamus. The next day, the third, the fast day is the seventeenth day of Tamus. Chamishu Dvarimirubai. Five things happened. Dishtabra Aluchas. Moshe Rabbeinu broke the tablets. The tablets were broken on Shivasa Tamus number two. Batil Hatamid Mabayis Rishon. 
During the first Beis HaMikdash on the 17th day of Tammuz, that's when the carbon Tammuz was obliterated. The Jews could not offer any more the daily offering, the sheep in the morning, the sheep in the afternoon. Number three, The city of Jerusalem was besieged, it was breached. The walls, the fortress of Yerushalayim was hufka, it was breached during the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash on Shiva Asa Batamas. The reason the Rambam says here, Churban Bayis Sheni, even though the Mishnah Masech Tainis, of course, says that Hufka Ha'ir was both in Bayis Rishon and in Bayis Sheni, and the Rambam says only Bayis Sheni, and the answer is because the Gemara asks a question that the source of these fasts comes from Shari Hanavi, as the Rambam is going to explain, and the date that's given in Tanakh, for the breaching of the wall of Jerusalem is not Yudzayin Tammuz, but Tes Tammuz, the ninth of Tammuz, not Shivasa Tammuz. So the Gemara says, Kan Bechur Ben Rishon, Kan Bechur Ben Sheni. By the first Beis HaMikdash, it was Taket Tes Tammuz. The second Beis HaMikdash, it was Shivasa Tammuz. That's why the Rambam says, Hufka Yerushalayim Bechur Ben Sheni. I should just say that the, it's, it's an interesting it's, it's an interesting topic. It's a separate Shia, really. The Yerushalmi has a different answer for the contradiction. The Yerushalmi says, Kilkul Cheshboinus Yashkan, meaning that really the first Beis HaMikdash, the walls were also breached on Shivasa Batamus. It was both. In other words, the Mishnah is actually talking about both Batei Mikdash, not only the second Beis HaMikdash. The reason the Navi says that it happened on the 9th of Tammuz, there was a Kilkul Cheshboinus, meaning there was, they got, uh, they got confused in the calculations, and therefore they said that in the first Beis HaMikdash, it was the 9th day of Tammuz. So the Marsha asks, what does it mean they got confused? What does it mean they got confused? What happened? So he says something very interesting. We know Chazal tell us that one of the Xeris, one of the decrees, the edicts that the Babylonians made against the Jewish people was they would not allow them to use their calendar. So therefore they could not use their calendar. They had to use the Babylonian calendar. Now the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. It follows the orbit of the moon. The Babylonian calendar, as today the Roman calendar, the secular calendar, the American calendar, whatever you want to call it, follows the solar orbit, not the lunar orbit. So therefore what happened was, when they counted the day, when they, when they established what was the day that the wall in the first base Samikdash, the wall of Yerushalayim during the first base Samikdash was breached, it was really Shiva Asabatam was according to the lunar calendar. But they were not allowed to count anything according to that calendar. So they had to go according to the solar calendar. So basically what they gave was the solar date for it. It was the solar date. Now apparently, what seems like, what the way they established the fast, right, it became, they were looking at the, at the, at the, at the solar calendar, so therefore the equivalent of that in the lunar calendar was the wrong day. It was Tess Thomas instead of Yudzayan Thomas. That's how the Yerushalmi explains the contradiction. But in any case, it's clear that this is a Suffolk, so therefore the Rambam keeps safe, and the Rambam just says that, I say this because the Magen Avram, Paskins, and Hilchus Tainin, and the Halachas of Tainis, and Erechayim, that a Bal Nefesh, somebody with a sensitive soul, should also fast on the ninth day of Tammuz, because according to the Bavli and Bayis Rishon, that's when the wall was breached, and when the fast was established, it may have even been established then. Although they decided at the end to go with Shiva Tammuz, First of all, because there's other reasons for Shiva Asabatamas, and also because the Khurban of Bayashani obviously was worse in many, many ways than Bayashrishan, and its impact didn't last for 70 years. Its impact lasted for uh, almost two millennia till today. So uh, the Magan Avram brings, but Abal Nefesh at fast also test. But then he says, according to the Yerushalmi, no, because it happened both on Shiva Asabatamas. Okay, that's just in the brackets. The, the third, the fourth thing is Vesaraf Apustumus Arasha Sefer 
Apustomos, the wicked one, burnt a Sefer Torah. And the fifth one is Vehemet Selem Behechel. He put in a Selem, a pagan idol, into the Hechel, into the chamber. So these are the five reasons for Shavasa Batamas. The Rambam continues, the fourth fast, Tishabav Chamishadvarim Iruboy. Five things happened. There was a decree on the Jews in the desert, they won't go into Israel. Number two, here he says both. The Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, it was burnt on Tishabov, both the first one and the second one. The first one in 586 BCE, and the second one, as you know, either 68 after the Common Era, or 69 after the Common Era, or 70 after the Common Era. Depends which safer you look at, but it was one of those three years, 68, 69, or 70, after the Common Era, when the second Beis HaMikdash was destroyed on Tishabov. The Romans conquered a huge city, it was called Betar, in which thousands and myriads of Jews lived. They had a great king. And all of the Jews and the greatest of the sages, which includes, of course, Rabbi Akiva, as, as the Gemara says, and the Rambam himself says, and Hilchus Malachim, believed or they imagined that he was Mashiach. But he was ultimately defeated. He fell. And all were murdered. And this was a tzara, like the churban of the Beis HaMiktosh itself. And this happened approximately a little less than one century after the churban Bayesheni. It happened around 130 after the Kamen Era, so around 60 years after churban Bayesheni, Rabbi Akiva's generation, when Bar Koichva stood up and almost, almost successfully extricated uh, Judea from the hand of the Romans, I think for two or three years, he literally ran an independent, an independent malucha uh, to the point that he made coins, he minted coins, Bar minted coins, and then it all ended in disaster. This happened on Tisha B'av when Beter was conquered. And that day that is conducive for Puronius, for negativity, for calamities, Turnus Rufus plowed the chamber, the Hechel and the entire environment. In other words, the Harabayas, the Temple Mount, he plowed into uh, earth as the Pasuk uh, predicted, Sia and Zion will be plowed like a field. So the Rambam here defines the fast that all Jews fast. The first is Samgadaya, Sarbatevis, Shivasabatamas, and Tishabav. And then the Rambam concludes this chapter and he says, now listen to his words. All these fast days. They will all be obliterated during the days of Mashiach. They are destined to become holidays, good days, and days of festivity and joy. The Pasuk says in Shari Perik Ches, the Navi says, So says Hashem. The fast of the fourth month, Tammuz. The fast of the fifth month, we're counting from Nisan. The fast of the fourth month, Tammuz. The fast of the fifth month, of. The fast of the seventh month, Tzamgedalia, on Tishrei. And the fast of the tenth month, which is of course, Tevis, Asarab Tevis. They will become for the house of Yehuda a day of joy and festivity. And days of great holidays, and you should love and cherish truth and peace. This is what the Rambam tells us from the Pasuk and Schari. To the point that if you look in the next source, the Medrash known as Rapsi says, The great Simcha will come only on, only on Tisha B'av. 
And here, the commentators over the, throughout the generations wondered about something. You can understand that if something terrible happened to a particular person on a day, and that day is always remembered as a day of calamity, as a day of distress, as a day of agony, especially when the agony continues, and its effects are not just it happened once, it continues and continues, so the person on this day always fasts or always remembers the pain of this day. And then the cause of that pain is removed. So there's no need anymore, perhaps, to be sad on this day. And the reason is because the reason is gone. If the reason is gone, the effect is gone. The question is, why will these days become Yomim Toivim? Even greater than a regular day. These days were days of suffering. The suffering was taken away. Mashiach comes, b'meira b'yameinu, so there's no reason to fast. Not on Asara B'tevis, not Saim G'dayi, not Shivasa B'tamas, not Tishabav. Because the cause for these fasts is gone. The cause was the tragedies that happened on that day that ultimately culminated in the Churban Beis HaMikdash, as the Rambam describes. Once the cause is gone, I understand that these days are now fine days. They're normal days. So they're not worse than any other day. But what makes them superior to the other days? To the point that we say that they're all going to become unique holidays and Yom Taivim. Why? Just because something terrible happened on that day. Something terrible happened that day, so it's actually a bad day. Okay, Baruch Hashem. The negativity was removed, so now the day is back to a normal day. Nobody has to fast today anymore. So Mashiach comes, Sunday morning will be a shir with a big breakfast. I'm not sure I'm going to be giving the shir when Mashiach comes. Probably be some better people to give shir or him. But fine, there'll be, the main thing is breakfast. Who cares who gives the shir? Okay, so Tisha B'Av, there'll be breakfast. Shabbat there'll be breakfast. The whole sort of the three weeks that had to get Aranga hacked the middle of the summer. Finally, you know, Jews are finished with Shavuos. Abchatzka Levenstein, the Mashgiach of Panovich, used to tell the Bachar. He says, you guys stay up a whole night of Shavuos to learn, and then you daven v'sikin, and then nachgeit min shlafen biz elul. And then you go to sleep Shavuos in the morning after v'sikin, till the month of elul. So finally, after Shavuos, Jews have a little break before Elul and Tishrei and everything. So you have the three weeks that come in. So when Mashiach comes, the Svarim even say, Tammuz is Rosh Tevis, Zmanei Tshuva, Memash Meshem, The times of Tshuva are coming already in Tammuz. So, uh, so it's going to be gone. So summer will be free from all the issues of the nine days and the three weeks. Why is it transformed into a yomtif into sasan and simchit. It's superior to any other day when no calamity happened to the point that the Medrash says that the greatest simcha ain't simcha ba only on Tisha B'av, dafka on Tisha B'av. Take a look in the next source. Take a look in the next source. A shtickle from the Oyev Yisrael by the Apterov. One of the great and early Hasidic masters was a Jew known as Rabbi Avraham Yehoshua Heschel who was the rabbi and the spiritual leader in the city of Apta, known as the Apter Rav. Later he moved to uh, Yassi and then to Mezhebush in the Ukraine, where he is buried right near in the same uh, area like the Balshemtiv in the city of Mezhebush. He passed away in the year, you know when the Apter Rav passed away? I believe in the year Tovkov Pehei, right? Huh? 1825, I think on, in Nissen, hey Nissen. Around 1825, he passed, 1825, maybe 1827. In the 1820s, the Apterov passed away. He wrote a few svarim. One of them is called Oyev Yisrael. The lover of the Jewish people, because that was the Apterov of Ram Yeshua Apta. I think I told you once, I said yesterday in Shul, maybe that the Apterov once said, he once said that everything in Torah is about Avis Yisrael. Every parsha is about loving the Jewish people. So there was a Jew there who wasn't very fond of the Apterov in his way of thinking. He says, really? Parsha's Balak. So he says, Parsha's Balak? The name is Avas Yisrael. 
The man said, where's Parshas Bolak Avizil? He said, look at Bolak. Bolak is a Rosh Hashanah. It's an acronym. V'ahavta l'reyecha kamoicha. So the man says, ah, this is how Hasidim work. This is wonderful. V'yahavta is with a vav. And Bolak is with a vase. Lamed, okay. L'reyecha. Bolak is with a kuf. And kamoicha is with a kuf. So where in the world did you get here v'ahavta l'reyecha kamoicha? So the Abtarov tells him, asakum tsa'avis Yisrael daf minish tazayim edayig zaynim pratim. When it comes to Avos Yisrael, you don't have to get caught up with details. <laughs> what the Rav was trying to tell him is, I know very well the spelling of Balak. I'm trying to teach you a lesson. And that is, if you're going to get obsessed with nuances and details, you will obsess for eternity. You will never be able to respect or have a relationship with anybody. You have to know what to look at, and you have to know what to look at, but not to see. <laughs> or as Bilam put it in Parshas Balak, Here's a shtickle from the Oyev Yisrael from the Abtarov in Parshas Pinchas this week. Oyev Yisrael, Arava Kaddish Me'apta Parshas Pinchas, quote, Lama Koyrin Parshas Pinchas B'Shabbes Bein HaMetzorim, B'Rev Why is it that Parshas Pinchas is most years read the first Shabbos of Bein HaMetzorim of the three weeks? Asher Kol Ikri HaMoyadim Ksufim B'Parshasu. When you look at Parshas Pinchas, all of the main holidays of the Jewish calendar are all in Parshas Pinchas. The source is Parshas Pinchas throughout the whole calendar. So it's fascinating. The three weeks, the Bein HaMitzar, which represents the destruction of Yerushalayim and commemorates the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, which ultimately put an end to all of the sacrifices that are discussed in Parshas Pinchas that you brought in the Beis HaMikdash on the holidays. And it's generally a parsha that deals with the happiest days of the Jewish calendar. It's always read during the saddest weeks of the Jewish calendar. This is the Abtarov's question. And he says, Big words. The 21 days between the 17th of Thomas and the 9th of Av, three weeks is of course 21 days, 7, 14, 21, are the sources and the roots for all the holidays of Judaism of the whole year. Because if you look at our Yom Tovim, they also make up 21 days. And he goes through the list. Hainu you have like this, Shabbos. Every week we have a Yom Tif. Every Once a week we have a holiday, a holy day actually, better. It's called Shabbos, so that's number one. Number two, we have Rosh Chodesh. These are, of course, the most frequent ones. It's every week or it's every month. Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh. Then you have Zayin Yemei HaPesach. You have seven days of Pesach. Of course, the original Pesach is seven days in Eretz Yisrael. So you have Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and seven days of Pesach. So we have nine. Then you have Yom Chag HaShavuos, one day of Shavuos. So you have ten. Then you have Beis Yomam Shur Rosh Hashanah, eight days of Rosh Hashanah, I mean two days of Rosh Hashanah, so you have twelve. Then you have Yom Kippur is thirteen. Then you have Ches Yemei HaSukkos, you have eight days of Sukkos, altogether you have twenty-one days. That covers the entire gamut of Yomim Toivim, Min HaToyrah, biblical holidays that are recorded in Toyrah, Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and then you have Pesach, Shavuos, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkos is twenty-one days. Vesimonach, the simon, the mnemonic for this is, the Pesach says in Tehillim, Ach, Toiv Yisrael. Ach is, Ach means only, but Ach also is, Chaf Aleph 21, Aleph and Chaf. Or as another Pesach in, in, in Chav Gimel, in Mizmer Ladavid Hashem Rai, Ach Toiv Chesed Yerdefuni, Kol Yemei only good, but Ach Toiv Yisrael means there's only good for the Jewish people. What's only? Ach means the 21 days of Yomim Toiv. Says the Oyev Yisrael that the 21 days of the three weeks 
from Shivasa Batamas of Tishabov, they are the roots and they are the source for the 21 days of the Yamim Toivim throughout the whole year. All Shabbosim, Rishchoidish, Rishishani, Yim Kippur, Pesach, Shavuos, And he continues, Churban Abayis Hoya Betes Ba'av. The Churban of the Besamikdash happened on the 10th day of Av. Va'ais Tes, Bixiva Ashuris. When you write a Tes in the in the way that what's known as Ksiva Ashuris, the original Lashon Kaidish, the way we write a Sefer Torah, you can see the test here in the source, that it's a unique letter. It's the only letter in the whole alphabet that the top goes inside. It gets doubled over and it goes inside into the test. It doesn't extend outwards, it goes inside. Lerame is to teach. Kituvya gonus begave. Tess. Represents the Gemara says in Baba Kama, learning now Baba Kama, those who are learning Daf Ayomi, where is it? Baba Kama Daf, uh, Daf Nun, that Haroya Tes Bechaloim, somebody sees the letter Tes in his dream, so it's a very good sign because Tes is Toiv, and the first Tes in the whole Torah, the first le- time the letter Tes is brought in Torah is Vayara Lakim Es Ki Toiv. So the letter Tes is associated with Toiv. But the Abtirav says it's Tuvye Gonus Begave. The top of the test comes down. In other words, it's concealed inside the test. The toiv is concealed in the test. That's why it comes in. So it's concealed in the womb, in the stomach of the test. You don't see it on the outside. Vizel, test of. That's what test of is. Tishabov, test of. Hainu. So this toiv of of is going to be the father, the leader, the test of. It's going to be the father of all the yamim toiv. That's to be the word ain. Then the 21 days will be awesome, great days that nobody can even imagine how great they're going to be. They are the sources of all the Yom Tovim that we do today. In other words, today what is festive is the other 21 days. But really what we're going to find out is that the greatest festivity are the other 21 days of the three weeks. And they are the source of the Yom Tovim that we have today. In other words, they're even more happy, they're even greater, they're more awesome. That's why Parshas Pinchas is read these days, because from these three weeks of the Bein HaMetzorim, all the other Yom Tovim come from. Now you read this Abtarav, it's like a little strange. Because these three weeks are the source of all the Yom Tovim. When these three weeks are supposed to be, and in halacha they are, and in history they are, the saddest days of the Jewish calendar. One of the psukim in Eicha that Yirmiyah Hanavi wrote to commemorate and describe the destruction of the first Beis Amikdash, which he experienced himself, is a psukim in Eicha, Perigimel psukim Tesvav. He says, "Is biyani b'meroyim hirvani lana." The Rebbeinu Shalolim satiated me with bitter herbs. And he gave me to drink the liquid that comes from a bitter poisonous grass. In other words, Yermio Anavi is lamenting his fate that he had to become satiated from murr. Imagine the only food a person has available is murr, and not the murr that we have that's already in Ishtazagafarlach, but the real bitter herbs, and that's what you become satiated with. And all you have to drink is lana, is the liquid that comes from a very bitter Venomous grass, that's what Yirmiya says, is biyani bameroirim hirvani lana. He satiated me with bitterness, and he gave me to drink from a bitter lana, as an ace of mar, a bitter grass, a bitter blade of grass. This is a posik in Eicha, read on Tishabov, of course. Comes the Medrash Rabbah in Eicha, and has quite a fascinating interpretation on this posik. Zog the Medrash Eicha, Rabbah Psichti Yudchaz, your next source. Reb Avin Posach. Reb Avin opened up his shear, and this is what he said. 
By the way, there are more source sheets, I believe, if anybody wants, right? There are more source sheets if anybody wants. Reb Avin Posach, Reb Avin said, He's biyani bameroirim. He satiated with with marer beleil Pesach shal yom tevarishin. is talking about the night of Pesach. The night of Pesach, a Jew is satiated with marer. That's what he's talking about. Hirvani lana betishabov. When did he give me to drink from the bitter grass? That's on Tishabov. So the Pasuk is talking about two states, two days in the Jewish calendar. His biyani bameroirim is Pesach. Hirvani lana is Tishabov. Mimashe is biyani bilele yom tevarishin shal Pesach. Hirvani bilele Tishabov lana. From that which he satiated me on the first night of Pesach with murder, from that he gave me to drink on the night of Tishabov lana. Heve. Hoy, thus, Belele Yom Tavadishim Shal Pesach, Hulele Tishabov, Valzeh Yemakainen Yirmi Yechi Yashrabadot. That is why in the Jewish calendar, the first night of Pesach will always coincide with the night of Tishabov. In the calendar, if you ever want to know which day Tishabov is going to be, if you look when the first day of Pesach is going to be, Tishabov will always be that day. That's why this year, for example, Pesach, the first day of Pesach was, of course, Shabbos. So Tishabov also is going to be on Shabbos, the fast is pushed off to Sunday, but the Tisha B'Av itself is on Shabbos. Why? Yirmi already made that connection between the Marer of Pesach and the Lana of Tisha B'Av. And here again, one wonders. The Marer we eat on Pesach is Zecher to the Golos that happened and the Jews left the Golos. And yet Yirmi is making a juxtaposition between the day of ultimate freedom of liberty, the day we were liberated from bondage, which is Pesach, to the day of Tisha B'av, when the Jews were sent back into exile and into bondage. In fact, there's no two days that seem as paradoxical as those days. One is a day of Geula, Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, that we celebrate till today, because it's the day we became free. And one is the day that commemorates the exact opposite notion and experience. Finally, a Gemara in Yuma. So the Gemara in Yuma, Daphnon Dalad Amen Aleph. Amr of Katina of Katina said, Bisha Shah Yisrael Eilun Leregel, Megalun Lemes Aparoiches, Amaran Lemes Akruvim Shoyim Urim Zebazet. When the Jewish people used to come up to Yerushalayim, Pesach Shavu Sukkis, they used to open up the Paroiches. They would open up the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the Holies. And they would show them the cherubs, the female and male golden cherubs that were there on top of the Oren. They were intertwined with each other. They would say, See your love before Hashem like the love of a, of a chasen and a kala, of a man and a woman, a groom and a bride. Rashi says, They were hugging each other like two who are really cherish each other and love each other. That's how the kruvim were hugging each other. And this is what they showed the Jewish people. This is what the Gemara says in Yuma. The next page in the Gemara, the Gemara says, When the Gentiles went into the Heichel, to the Beis HaMikdash, to destroy it, and they went into the Holy of Holies, what did they see? They saw the Kruvim, the Cherubs, were hugging one another. They were, in, inter, they were integrated, they were intertwined, they were embracing one another. So all of the Rishonim, Already the Rimigash, the Rebbe of the Rambam, the Talmud of the Rif, was Rabbeinu Yosef Migash, and the Rishonim, he was from the earliest Rishonim. And then many subsequent Rishonim, the Ritva and others, asked, this doesn't make sense, because the Gemara says that the Kruvim represented the state of the Cherubs, represented the state of the relationship between the Jews and Hashem. So when they were close, the Kruvim were hugging each other. When they were semi-close, they were looking at each other. And they were, when they had, when there was alienation, then they turned away from each other, you know, like a couple, you know, it's called the ice treatment, you don't look at each other. That's what happens. So this is 
This was actually a symbol of their state of their relation, the state of their relationship. How is it then that on Tishabov, when they went into the Heichel to destroy it, they saw Kruvim Amaurim Zabazah, that actually the Kruvim were in the closest possible state of love and intimacy when essentially it seemed like the most distant state possible. Let's learn to begin the explanation of all of this. Be'ezer Hashem, let's learn a shtikl from the Magad of Mizrich in a Sefer Oy Torah Parshish Maseh. Magad of Mizrich, as you know, was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Chassidus, passed away. Yutas Kislev Tovkov Lamad Gimel, the 19th of Kislev, 1772. He has a few svarim, one of them is called Oy Torah. On the Parshish, and Parshish Maseh, this is what he says. He quotes a pasuk in Masi, The Jews left Mara and they came to Elima. Going through the 42 journeys in the desert, they left Mara, they came to Elima. What happened in Mara? We know in Parshas Balak, in Parshas Bashalach, they came to Mara. And it's called Mara, why? Because there was water and they couldn't drink the water because it says, The water was bitter. So now they leave Mara and they come to Elima. And there they find beautiful well springs of water and so forth. Pirish, what this means is, It says they walked for three days, they couldn't find water, they came tomorrow, they couldn't drink the water, why? Because it was bitter. It says, What does it mean they couldn't drink? On a spiritual level, the story is a metaphor. They couldn't feel the love that exists in Gvura, the love that exists in strength and discipline. Kimarim heim, because they were bitter. What does it mean they were bitter? Not the water was bitter. They were bitter. Bitter people, whatever they taste is bitter. When you're in a state of bitterness, nothing is good enough. What we call in our language, chronic complainers. The reason nothing is ever good enough is because, not kimarim heim, because the water was bitter. Because they were bitter. In Yiddish it's called bitter dimension. Bitter people, everything is bitter. Whatever you taste is bitter. Why? Because you're bitter. So this comes from the Magad. The Magad says, They were in a state of bitterness. If they were in a state of goodness, From the morrow water, they would have had even more benefit. Because in each din, in each judgment, there is kindness. If they would be able to break the shell of the din, they would discover the good. But because they were bitter, they couldn't find the ava in the gvura. This is the meaning. Okay, there's going to be a little bit of mystical language here, which I'm going to explain, but I want to just read it. They left Mar and they came to Elima. Elima who Isis Elikim. Elima is the same letters like Hashem's name Elikim. Aleph Lamed Hey Yud Mem. But Elikim is Aleph Lamed Hey Yud Mem. And Elima is Eli, Keli, my God, Ma. What? Elima. So it's the same letters like Elikim, but the combination is different. Ma, Nikra Dover Musak. When you say Ma, what? It's something that you can't comprehend. That's why you're saying what. If it's comprehensible, you wouldn't say what. So Ma is something you don't comprehend. The kindness that, in, that is in din, in severity, in judgment, is not comprehensible. So it's ma. It's not visible. It's not something you can easily wrap your brain around. So you say ma, what? So elima is keilima. Keili is chesed. Pasuk says in Tehillim, keil chesed keil kolayoyim. 
Keli represents kindness, but it's a type of Keli, which is Elima. It's ma. It's something that I cannot easily see or wrap my head around. I say what? Ki? So that's, they came, from, they left Mara, they reached a place where they could recognize the Keli in Ma. This is the meaning, David HaMelech says, The Pasuk says, give us, bring us help from distress. So it doesn't mean bring us help from distress. We should be able to see the help that comes from the distress. We should be able, bring us, allow us to see the Ezra that's in the Tsar. In other words, to be able to have the Elima. Now this is very abstract, mystical language. What does the Magad mean? So there is a discourse from the Tzemach Tzedek who takes this Tikal Magad and explains it at length. And it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to read it together with you. It's a shtickle from the Tzamach Tzedek. Tzamach Tzedek was the grandson, as you know, of the Baal Atanya, the third Rebbe in the Chabad dynasty, Rebbe Nachemendel of Lubavitch, who passed away exactly 150 years ago. Tov uh, Reish Chavav, 1866. So that's exactly 150 years ago. He has a set of svarim called Eir Ha-Tayr. And uh, in Parshish Masse on this Pasuk, he brings the Magad's interpretation and he explains what it means. He, he gives it a few pages, explaining it at length in his style, in his unique style. But I took out a few paragraphs where he elaborates on this point and he brings it back to the questions that we discussed earlier when it comes to the three weeks. And he's the one who makes that connection. So let's see what he says. The next piece, it's the second to the last paragraph here on your first source sheet. We have to understand. I'm going to read it. I think it's going to be pretty self-explanatory. He's very, uh, he's, he's generally elaborate and, and explains everything in a very uh, comprehensible way, at least very frequently. But I'm going to give some explanations here and there, but you'll get the mahalach, I think, pretty smoothly. One has to understand. Even when the Beis HaMikdash gets rebuilt speedily in our day. So there won't be any more grief on Tishabov. Why is it going to be a Yomtev? What Tishabov will be like is a day when we left mourning. So will be Tishabov will just be a regular day. The Beis Hamikdash was never destroyed on Tishabov because we're not going to be remembering it because it's going to be rebuilt. So Tishabov will basically be like Tishabov before the Churban Beis Hamikdash. What was Tishabov before the Churban Beis Hamikdash? It wasn't a bad day. How is it suddenly becoming a yamtif? Now, what's his question? His question is not just why are they going to make it a yamtif. How is it a yamtif? A yamtif is not just we decide that we need a day of vacation, so we make a yamtif. A yamtif is a day in which there's a special, intense, sacred energy that turns it into a different type of day, in the sense of the godliness that's available on that day, the holiness that dwells in that day, the opportunities that are available on that day. What makes it a yamtif? It's a day of terrible tragedy. The tragedy is gone, like we said before, so it's a regular day. No, there's something in it that turns it into a unique day, a yamtif. Let's give a mashal. Somebody who loves their child naturally. 
a regular parent, a father, certainly a mother, loves a, par- a child naturally. The love that the father has to the son is perpetual. It's always there. See, he's now describing fathers. But fathers don't always know how to show it. <laughs> the love is concealed in the nature of a father to a son. Today, many men are becoming a little more feminine. So maybe they're learning how to show it. But certainly at this point, at this point when this was written, <laughs> it was concealed. The love is there. It's no question the love is there. But it's behelim beteva of leben. Right? Plenty of people sitting in this room who never heard from their father how much he loves them. They would have loved to, but they have not. Achu behelim beteva of leben. It's concealed in the nature of the father to the son. When the child falls down to the ground and hurts himself, what happens? Suddenly, the father emerges from his state of uh, apparent coldness and apathy, and he'll do anything to the point of complete sacrifice to lift up his child from this space. Over here there's a Geshmaka Maisa about the author of this uh, discourse. The Tzemach Tzedek himself was a Yasim from a very young age, he had a mother, her name was Rebetzin Dvairaleya, who was a daughter of the Balatanya. And she felt that there was a kitrug, a uh, heavenly decree on her father to die very young. It's a whole story she called in a Bezdin with a Sefetayra, and she gave her life for her father. This was right before Rosh Hashanah, and then a few day after Rosh Hashanah she passed away. And uh, she made a condition with her father that he's going to raise her son, who was a little baby, he was two years old. So the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, took in the Tzamech Tzedek and he raised him like a child. So they would play sometimes, you know, like a Zayda or a father plays with a child. And once he had this Tzamech Tzedek who was a baby on his lap. And you know, from the picture, the Balatanya had a beautiful long beard. So he was, uh, he was caressing his Zayda's beard. And he was saying, Zayda, 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 you know, Zayda, Zayda, Zaydi, Zaydi, my grandfather. So his grandfather asks him, he says, this is not the Zayda, this is the board from the Zayda. Who is the Zayda? This is not the Zayda, this is the beard of the Zayda. Where is the Zayda? So he touches his cheeks. So he says, This is not the Zayda, this is the Bekalach from the Zayda. You know, the Pachi, Pachi, Bekalach. These are the cheeks of the Zayda, it's not the Zayda. Where is the Zayda? So he touches his eyes. He says, This is not the Zayda, these are the eyes of the Zayda. Where is the Zayda? And so he goes to his head, he says, This is the head of the Zayda, it's not the Zayda, the mouth of the Zayda. Where is the Zayda? Samach Tzedek is stumped. Stumped. Or so his grandfather thought. Okay, he gets off his lap and he continues playing. He was Mamash a baby. He continues playing. A few minutes later, the Balatanya was sitting wherever he was sitting. And suddenly he hears a scream. Ah! And he comes running. And his grandfather has his finger between the door. In the door. Like it was stubbed by the door. His, his finger is like stuck in the door. So the Alter Rebbe Balatanya runs over to pick him up. He says, ah, das is the Zayda. <laughs> he says, ah, that's the grandfather. <laughs> that's the grandfather. Here it came out. Of course, he didn't hurt his finger. He just made this whole shtick to be able to get him. With, and that scream came running to him. He says, ah, das is the Zayda. This was his, uh, his stick. <laughs> we call a deep child. Butzen, butzen, makat So when this child falls and is in a mess... And when you say falls here, it doesn't necessarily mean falls physically. That, of course, too. But falls psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. The father himself did not know he loved his son so much. 
he may have not known, he may have not seen his love so much as how it comes out after the child falls. Then it gives another example. Or he makes himself dirty with excrement. And again, he either means physical or sometimes other forms of, uh, of excrement. As I, so of course, if it's unintentional, so the love will come out in the sense that he'll lift him up and he'll caress him and he'll embrace him. And what if it's intentional? <laughs> the child is gravitating there. As a yirgaz v'yichas alava av ma'oid, The father will be very upset and will express to the child this upsetness for the fact that he lowered himself, he humbled himself, and he made himself so disgusting. Now sometimes this upsetness may result in din gomer. Din gomer means absolute severity. Din as in strictness, judgment, discipline. Absolute discipline. He may strike him or rebuke him for it. Rebuke him, chastise him for it. But the truth is, even though he strikes him verbally or, or whatever, physically, this was very traditional at the time. And he disciplines him. Really what's behind it is his love. If he wouldn't love him, he wouldn't care that he fell or that he hurt himself or that he got himself dirty or that he lowered himself, he made himself disgusting. Another child this happens to, it doesn't hurt him because it's not his child. Here he feels hurt. Why? Because of the love. So when he disciplines his child, what's behind the discipline? The fact that he cares, that he loves. On the contrary, in this anger, in this discipline, the word anger, okay, it could be misconstrued here, let me use. In this discipline, the natural love comes out with tremendous revelation. And with a glowing, fiery passion. The tremendous craving and intensity of love. Much more than from the way the love was first in his heart concealed. Because the reason he is so hurt by what happened to the child is because he loves him. The more the child is precious to you, the more you feel pain, the more you feel hurt. Nimtza, this means, When he's disciplining the child, this love is really much stronger than when he's not. This is the internalized intensity of love. The love is so deep. To the fact, to the point that he's ready to manifest his love and discipline. Which appears opposite of an external revelation of love. He's doing something which makes him look like somebody who doesn't like the child. He's doing something that externally is contrary to a chitzainius dike, to a revealed expression of love. The question is, how can a loving father do this to repress his natural external love? The love has to be so deep that he's ready to overpower the external sense of love, nullify it, and actually express himself in the opposite fashion. 
In the beginning, it was only and that's why he was kind. And now there's a deeper form of love, and that's why he's disciplining him. What is the Rebbe de Tzamech Tzadik teaching us here? He's teaching us here in a roundabout way. But a Gevaldike Yisoid. You see, often we are used to the concept of punishment, discipline, anger, coming from a place of anger, of negativity. When do you punish your children? When do you penalize your child? When do you discipline your child? So many people will tell you, I come home, I'm in a bad mood, I had a long day, I have a headache, all I want is menucha. I want a little serenity. I want to be able to text freely for four and a half hours. To be able to be absorbed in my iPhone addiction without anybody disturbing me. After all, it wasn't enough that I was on it a whole day. Nighttime is a time for serenity. Now the child is disturbing the father or the mother. So therefore, actually the metaphor here is the father. So the father lashes out and disciplines him. This, as you could see here, has nothing to do with discipline. That is actually gvura, that is ra, it's bad, it's not good. You're not allowed to. It's destructive. The only din, the only discipline that is allowed is discipline that is coming from love. And not only coming from love, it's coming from a deeper love than the love that you're expressing when you're kissing, hugging, embracing, and giving ice cream and taking your child on a trip. If the love that you're feeling in your heart when you're disciplining your child is not deeper than the love you're feeling when you're embracing your child, then the discipline is not coming from a place of holiness, it's coming from a place of selfishness and unholiness. As we'll see, it's not coming from a place of Yitzchak, it's coming from a place of Esau. Yitzchak had more love than Avraham. He's going to say soon, Avraham, this Yitzchak. Yitzchak had more love than Avraham. Why? Because if you really love somebody, how can you discipline them? How can you penalize them? How can you do it? It's so difficult. It's so hard. Is it easier to tell your child yes, or is it easier to tell your child no? So if you're an angry, vengeful old man, if you hate yourself and you hate everybody else, it's always easier to say no. But somebody who's full of love, even if the love is not always the most expressed or explosive, it's always easier to say yes than to say no. I Probably most mothers will say it's much easier to say yes than to say no. But just because it's easier doesn't mean it's better. Sometimes what the child needs is for you to say no, not to say yes. So for a person for whom it's easier to say yes than to say no, for them to say no, what do they have to do? They have to find within themselves a deeper love that is so powerful that it will overpower the natural tendency to give love and say, even though I would love to love, but if I really love, I have to do something else. Even though I would love to love, even though I would love to say yes, 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 more candies, more lollipops, why not? You already finished 10 bags, finished 20. Why not? It can't kill you. Or whatever the yes is, yes, take the toy, take another another hour of video, another hour, I'll buy it, to you, I'll buy it for you, no problem. Yes, yes, yes. Even though it's much easier, and not only because I'm lazy, it could be it's easier because I'm a loving person, and I want to be close to you. But nonetheless, I tell myself, because I really love you, and that love is very, very deep, so therefore I have to overcome and vanquish my natural desire to show love, and engage in something that appears and is manifested as a motion, as a movement, that is l'cha'oida, 
The opposite of Ava, the opposite of Chesed. Why? Because I love you much more. If I wouldn't love you so much, I would say, yeah, it's much easier to say yes. But because I love you so much, I have to actually challenge my emotion of Chesed, my Chitzonius HaChesed, my inclination to express love, and say, if I express love here, it's nice, it's Geshmak, it's delightful, it's beautiful, it's loving. But it's not really, really loving. In long term, it's not loving. It's not good for this child. It's not healthy for this child. It's not productive for this child. I'm enabling behavior that will create a monster, or will create somebody who doesn't know responsibility, or will create somebody who doesn't know their value, or will create somebody who doesn't know how to be a mensch and live in this world. So what's the benefit of it? The benefit of it is that it feels good, it's nice at the moment, but it's not really, really loving. That discipline, that's holy discipline. In other words, practically, if before you're disciplining your child, your heart is not exploding, or at least imploding, with love, then you have to be very careful with this discipline. Because then the discipline might be destructive. It might be there to crush. I'm just in a bad mood. Like sometimes we know discipline or punishments, the word punishment associates within most of us the feeling of a person who lost control and simply needs to show how powerful they are, simply to get back at you, or to vent their frustration, or to show you who's boss. So the word punishment in our minds, or din, or kas, or roiges, or haka, are all understood as things that come from weakness. And if we would only be a little more confident and a little more wholesome, we wouldn't do it. A mother once asked me if you're allowed to slap a child today. If in today's day and age you're allowed to hit a child. So uh, I remembered something I once heard from a uh, wise man, and I told her, I said, you know, what do you think? That's always the best answer. So she says she's having this argument with her husband. Her husband says, today you're not allowed to. And she says, you have to sometimes today too. I say, but my kamifligi, what's this far as hamachlaikas? She says, because my husband is never home, so it works for him. Of course he doesn't have to slap the child. He's never home, he doesn't have to deal with them. Not Sunday, and not Monday, and not Tuesday, and not Friday. He says, Hamachaya. And the moment it gets stressful in the house, he always has Dafyoimi to go to. So it's always good. There's always a shear going on in 18 for Shea somewhere else. So it's wonderful. But I have to stay home. So it's very nice to say you don't have to spank the child. So uh, I told her, I said, listen, I'm not going to get involved in the local politics. The debate between your husband and your wife. I'm sure you're both wonderful people. You'll work it out. I'm just going to give you a piece of advice. Sit down one night when all the kids are asleep and the house is calm and the house is clean and you're not exhausted. If there's such a metzius, maybe in the next 30 years, sit down one night when you're not exhausted and the house is clean and the house is calm. And when you're in a reflective mode, take a pencil or a pen and write down on a piece of paper what are the things that my child does that deserve a frask, that deserve a spanking. In other words, it should be premeditated. It should be thought out and calculated. It shouldn't be impulsive, spontaneous. The orange juice spilled on the counter. I just finished cleaning it. You made a mess. You're not it. You hit your sister. No. Nothing impulsive. There's a list. You put the list in your pocket or you put it somewhere in your drawer. And when your child does something, before you, you take out the list. If it's in the list, fine. If it's not in the list, you're not allowed to do it. But the list has to be made when you're calm and cool and relaxed. Let me know how many items will be on the list. 
that you sit down and write down, for this, I have to hit my child. There's no choice. You know what the conclusion was? You know how many items were on the list? <laughs> You're not home, so you don't know. Okay. She couldn't find anything. She couldn't find anything. Why? Because when you're thinking calmly, what did he do? Okay, this happened because he was tired. <laughs> because he didn't realize. Because he was exhausted. Because this one was exhausted. Because suddenly she realized that he's not the terrorist. But when you're in a state of anxiety and you don't have control, and you are stressed out, and you're exhausted, and you haven't eaten, you haven't eaten in two days, and you haven't drunk in three days, and you haven't slept in 17 years, so naturally, you plots, you plots, you vent, that's what happens. You know, a person doesn't always have that self-control. It's a normal thing, that's also human, that's also normal. But from a place of meditation and wholesomeness, the picture changes. That's the issue. The issue is not spanking, not spanking, discipline, not discipline. The issue is, before you discipline your child or your student, are you in a place where you're feeling an incredible outburst of internal love? Even more love than the love you're feeling when you're kissing the child, embracing the child, playing with the child, having positive a connection with the child, going on a trip with the child, playing ball with the child, whatever it is. Even more. Because if the love that precedes the discipline is not deeper than the love that is being displayed in a moment of positive interaction, then the discipline is not warranted. The discipline is unjustified. What justifies the discipline is that it's mysterious nefesh for me. That it's hard for me. That it's easier for me not to do it. If it's not easier for me not to do it, don't do it. I'm in a state where I love this person to pieces. The natural instinct is give them a kiss. Or just move away, go away or ignore. But because I love you to pieces even more. (laughs) Because the love is so deep, I'm going to overcome my natural inclination to love. And I'm going to discipline you. Why? Because I'm completely focused on what you need. Then you understand what type of punishment it's going to be. You understand how you're going to discipline the person. You understand what you will do and what you won't do. What if I'm not in that state? I'm not ready to discipline. Then I have to go to the gym, take a punching bag, punch it out 300 times. Maybe some of you have to go to a restaurant, eat a good meal. Maybe some people have to go to the garage, take a bat, bat the tire 920 times let out all the anger and frustration of the day. Maybe some people need to do 60 push-ups. Anyway, shatnished. On a good day, shatnished, even if you're not in a bad mood. And then you could maybe come home in a more wholesome way. But if it's not coming from a place of pinimius ha'ava, that's even more ava than regular ava, then it's not called holy din. Then it's something else. Then it's vengeance, anger, destruction, and it will result that way. When a person is disciplined, not out of love, they often become crushed, they often are broken. And we all know the difference between the two types of discipline. In one, the child senses the depth of the love and concern, if not consciously, subconsciously. And in the other one, they sense a person who lost control. They're simply more powerful than me, and I have nothing to do. But when I get older, and, uh, and it'll, be, it'll be my turn, then, you know, topsy-turvy, called the alam gvar. That's the distinction he's making. So this is the marshal that the Tzamech Tzedek is giving us to understand what discipline is in the Jewish Weltanschauung. Let's see further now. So, 
but this is the point you have to remember. Why is it coming from a deeper place of love? Because it takes sacrifice for you to repress the feeling of love and expressing it externally. And you're going to overcome that. How can you overcome that? It has to come from a deeper place of love. The love is so deep, it's coming from Pnimi Yisav. So now he continues, the fourth line from the top, after the three dots. And yet, the depth of love is expressing itself through discipline. In other words, through the opposite. You're telling the child no. You're creating a distance. You're creating something that seems like a barrier between you two. That's what discipline is. Discipline is, is you're challenging the person. You're telling them no. So what you're seeing is gvura, restraint, discipline, barriers, borders, the opposite of love. But really, it's coming because there was more love. And because there was so much love, you were ready to forego your natural inclination to just express the love in a ordinary fashion. So in this discipline, I'm not translating it anger, and the reason is because psychologically, most of us, when we hear the word anger, we don't think it's controlled and wholesome. We hear the word anger, we know what it means. It means we lost ourselves. We're in a place of insecurity and fear. When he says kas, he means kas that's actually cerebral. I'm upset about what happened, and I'm trying to fix it. I'm not being uh, impulsive because I feel weak. So it's a different type of kaas. That's why I'm calling it discipline. Yeshnei hafchim, there's two opposites. If you excavate the discipline, what's behind it? You'll find a passion of love. You'll find fiery love more than the kiss. When he gives the child the chocolate, or when he gives his child the ice cream, you see expressive love. When he says, I love you, and he hugs him. You see love in the discipline, if it's real discipline, coming from a person who works on himself, coming from a person who truly loves his child, if you'll go deeper, you'll see more love. You know why you'll see more love? Because for him to, if he loves his child, for him to do this, for him to, it's so unnatural, it takes mysterious nefesh. That means he loves him so much, he's ready to go on mysterious nefesh to discipline him. But if it's easy for you to discipline, oh, then you need help. If it's easy for you to discipline, then it's a little bit of a dangerous situation. Certainly don't be it. In other words, it's difficult for him. So why is he doing it? Because his love is too intense and therefore he's foregoing his natural ava. So on a deeper level you see a tremendous ava. But if you look at it superficially, what do you see? You see discipline. You see severity. You see harshness. You see boundaries. In other words, the deepest love is in clothing itself. It's putting on a garment. It's expressing itself through something that's mamish, the opposite of the Ava. But it's not really dressing itself in something opposite. It's not that he really lost his love. We all see. The moment the garment is removed, Nishar Pnimiyas Hakas Lavat. After the discipline, what's left is the, the internal emotion of the discipline. The tremendous love that brought him to this discipline. And then he says, The 
And then the father will start weeping and ask himself, why did I have to do such a thing which was so unlike me and so unbefitting me? Because it was Din Mamash. Only a person who feels the pain of the discipline, who feels the pain of it, only that person, that father who's crying after the serious discipline, then you know that the discipline is authentic, it's holy, it's coming from a place of chesed. Why? Because throughout all of it, it was full of love. And therefore, after he's done with the outer show, that's what comes out, the tremendous love. The child feels how the father is weeping for the fact that he had to strike him. Now, when you got a patch, did the person after he patched you sit down and cry? Huh? In yeshiva, did that happen? Trach, trach, and then he went and cried. <laughs> or he went to smack the next guy. <laughs> so this is what I also told his mother. I said, maybe you're right, but the child has to see you cry for half an hour afterwards. If you could do that, fine. <laughs> if you're not going to cry for half an hour afterwards, just be very careful before you're doing it. Why? Because the question is if I'm in a space of love or I'm not in a space of love. If I'm in a space of anger, I'm human, I'm fine. Gesund to hate. But don't call yourself an educator. <laughs> you're not an educator. You're an angry man. I got it. You're a frustrated woman. Fine. You're human. But don't call yourself a mechanech. Right now you're not a pedagogue. You're in a place of weakness. In fact, you are the child. You need a little bit of love. You are the child. How can a child educate a child? How can a six-year-old educate a seven-year-old? <laughs> doesn't work that way. You have to be an adult to educate. To be an adult, you have to deserve to be an adult. It's not, a, it's not my passport. And therefore, after the striking, what's left? What's left is the core emotion. The tremendous love that fueled the discipline. So now after the discipline, the love that emerges, if it was there and the discipline came from it, is more love than would have ever come out without the discipline. Because without the discipline, it was just the regular flow and the father's love is often concealed. When the child fell in his first example... He showed the love to lift him up. When the child messed up his life, or is messing up his life, or is doing something that requires this level of thoughtful, loving discipline, the love that emerges in the discipline is far deeper, which is what? Allows him to discipline his child, contrary to his natural nature. And therefore, after the discipline, what emerges is greater love than ever before. After this mushal, we can now go back to the three weeks and understand Tisha The Churban of the Beis HaMikdash was an expression like the Eichel, Megillus Eichel says, He poured out his wrath like fire. When we hear the word wrath, when we hear the word God's punishment, when we hear the word God, what do we feel like? Often in our mind, psychologically, we construe it as an angry, hopeless, vengeful uh, energy that's there to strike you. In fact, ask most people honestly, if you had to close your eyes and impul- instinctively write down on a piece of paper 
the first definition you have of Hashem. The moment you hear the word Hashem, the name Hashem, or the Rebbeinu Shalolam, or God, or HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or the Rebishter, or the Bashefer, or the Heileke Bashefer, whatever it is, the moment you hear that word, okay, instinctively, without thinking, what is the image that it conjures up in your mind? What is the picture that, it com- that comes up? If you had to write down the first picture, or just see it, before you think about it, and before you analyze it, and before you dissect it, and before you meditate on it, because then the mind plays all the tricks. But before the tricks happen, before the mind tr- games, before mind games, what is the first image that comes up? Anybody wants to say? You don't have to all answer at once. You think for most people it's love? Huh? Eventually. Oh, vengeful. Okay. So one man says, vengeance, vengeance. What happens is, at two or three or four or five, we paint in our child brain a picture of what God is. And when we're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, we're usually still holding on to that picture. And when we hear the word Hashem, that immediately comes up. We may be adults, and we may have thought about it, maybe not, but that instinctive picture comes up. And if you cannot uh, work on that, it's very hard to develop a powerful, loving, intense relationship with Hashem. People don't even realize this, because this is instinctive. It's so deep, they don't have to think about it. It just comes up emergent, initially. What, what is yours? Higher power. And what does the higher power look like? <laughs> okay. But you have a picture for it? Yeah, anybody? Fear, okay. Fear. So that's very intense. So the first thing we hear when we hear God is, some of us fear. Or as somebody told me, a black cloud. Or somebody once told me, piercing eyes. Two piercing eyes, very powerful eyes, right on them. Because that's what they were told. Or somebody once told me, their father. <laughs> that's, their father was God. Somebody once told me, their older brother was a madman. Whatever it is. So every person in their own way, I'm sure some people have also other images, you know. There was, uh, they say there was a, a teacher who, uh, who asked uh, the kids to write down on a, a, public, a Hebrew school, of a, a temple at a Hebrew school. So he asked the kids to write down on a piece of paper the first word they associate with God. So one wrote Hanukkah, one wrote Purim, one wrote Yom Kippur, one wrote a menorah, one wrote Israel, one wrote uh, Torah, Tfil, whatever. And then somebody wrote a scale. So they said, why? What's the connection? So she says, uh, he says, I don't know, I just know whenever my mother goes on the scale, she says, oh my God. So everybody associates God with some interesting picture, right? What he's trying to teach us here is that we have to be able to liberate ourselves from a paradigm and literally create a paradigm shift. And it's not easy to create a paradigm shift. That your greatest, the one who loves you more than anybody is Hashem. And the deepest form of love is the love that Hashem has to you. As the Baal Shem Tov once said, Hashem loves a Jew more than parents love an only child who was born when they were an older couple already and they couldn't have children. They had one child. The love that Hashem has to every Jew is infinitely greater than that love. In Zayar Parshish Shmois it says that if a Jew, a person would know how much Hashem loves him, he would run after a relationship with Hashem faster than a lioness runs after her prey. You ever saw National Geographic? You ever went to the African uh, Kruger National Park? You ever saw how the lionesses run? 
You don't want to get in their way. Trust me, you don't want to get in their way. I once had a mice when I was in Africa in Lions Park. It's a separate mice. So the Zoya says you would run after him faster than the lioness. Why? Because you would feel the love. The love would be unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet very often, so much of our experience or our education teaches in a very deep way a Yiddishkeit that is filled with an underlying feeling of vengeance and anger and hate and rash, harsh, impulsive decisions coming from somebody who's looking for another excuse to punish and strike you down and debilitate you and curse you. And if not in this world, the barbecue is waiting in next world and it's hot. It's very hot. And he put some extra barbecue sauce too. Especially with a guy like you. And throughout life, people hear different messages. Now, sometimes the people who give those messages are just doing the best they can. They're teaching what they were taught. I cannot teach other people what I have not been taught. I can only teach people what I feel, what I know. Either from my experience or from my knowledge. I can't teach anything else. So what I know about God or about Judaism is what I give over to my students, what I give over to my children, what I give over to the next generation. So there comes a point where healing has to happen. So I think a major objective of his explanation here is to try to create some healing. Now healing doesn't mean there's no pain. There's a lot of pain and a lot of mystery and a lot of incomprehensible realities. But the question is, are we seeing it as vengeance or are we seeing it as ultimately coming from a source that believes in you maybe more than you believe in yourself and loves you may be more than you love yourself. And to be able to love yourself as much as you love him. That's, I think, a major objective in this explanation. So when we look at Megillus Eicha, or we look at Tishabah, we look at the three weeks, what we get in our history and what we get in our, in our experience is a lot of negative energy. You're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this. And that's the halacha. It's three weeks now, there's limitations. Nine days, even more limitations. Of course, the worst, no meat. You found that funny, okay? The men don't find it so funny. They all have to make siyumi mesechtas. They joined Afyomi for a few months. <laughs> so he says, You have to look at the three weeks, you have to see the pnimiyas and you have to see the chitzonias. You have to see the inside and you have to see the outside. Kanal b'mashal. You have to be able to look at the pnimiyas at the inside of Tisha B'Av in the three weeks. What is it? There's an ex- absolute, intense explosion of Ava that comes out in the most revealed way from concealment. Why? Because I love the Jewish people infinitely. And to see the pain and the, the demoralization and the alienation and the filth and the toxicity that attached itself to the Jewish people creates tremendous, tremendous pain and agony in the entire system of reality and in Hashem Himself because of the tremendous love. And it's expressed in all of the discipline 
and all of the Einshim, and all of the Bila Hashem Veloi Chama, when he says there's no compassion, so he says you could say no compassion means there's no compassion, or the compassion is so deep, it's expressing itself in a pain that is the exact opposite. The Pardis is a Kabbalistic work by the Ramak, Rabbi Moshe Kordevera. And the Pardis brings something from Sefer Abay, which is one of the earliest works of Kabbalah by Ibn Chunya ben Akana. Hamayim haru v'yoldu afela. The water became pregnant and gave birth to darkness. Kenu b'medrush rabba parshas boy parsha tesvav. The medrush rabba says the same thing. The water became pregnant and gave birth to darkness. What does this mean? Moira. Ki ilas v'sibas ha'gvurishu afela. The cause of Gvura, which is darkness, was water, which is Chesed. The water, the vapor of the water, produced darkness. Avraham gave birth to Yitzchak. The water gave birth to darkness. Water is Chesed, darkness is Gvura. The Pardis quotes this statement from Medrash, Parshas Boy, and Kabbalah Sefer Abboy. Water became pregnant and gave birth to darkness. Avram gave birth to Yitzchak. And the Pardis, Reb Moshe Cordovero, says, I can't comprehend this. This doesn't make sense. He says, according to what we explained, us Shapa, we understand. It's only the water that can give birth to darkness. It's only Avram that can give birth to Yitzchak. If the darkness is not coming from the water, in other words, if the gvur is not coming from the chesed, then it's bad. Then it's destructive. Then it's unholy. Then it's not godly. What gives Yitzchak his holiness is that he comes completely from Avram. Whenever darkness is not coming from a place of complete love and kindness, then it's really dark. If the darkness is coming from a place of love and kindness, then the dark is a garment, it's a cloak that has tremendous light in it. There's meaning in it, there's love in it, there's purpose in it. And if a person cannot experience the darkness coming from the water, then that darkness, if it's really not coming from the water, that's really dark. And when the discipline is done, what's left? Just the love. And then it's much more love than you had initially, which was just external love. That's why when this love comes out, Tishabov becomes a happy day. If that's the case, why is it that during the three weeks one has to mourn? They should say it's the time of the greatest joy. The answer is, as long as a Jew is in Golos, so the love is enclosed in Din, in severity, so therefore it's not a time of simcha, it's a time of avelis. That's what halacha expresses. Halacha expresses the garment that houses the love. And what he's trying to say here, that nister is trying to show the love that's in the garment, that's in the pain, the meaning that's in it, the love that's in it, the hugging that's in it, even though the halacha is paying tribute to the manifestation of it, which is din, which is discipline.
אך כל זמן, אבל אחר שינוחם השם הלמה ויושב לליבוי אוי זהבה, הרי מחמס הכעס הקודם בו לדי גילי פנימי זהבה, וזהו עניין שבס נחם הוא לאחר תשבב, וכן כל שבט דנחמת, וזהו שלאוסד לא ויאמרו ליצחק יעת אבינו, כי אברהם הילדס יצחק היינו חסד שבגבורי זהו גבוי מבחינת חסד לאברהם עצמו. The Gemara says in Psachim, in Shabbos, based on a Pesach in Yeshaya, that לאוסד we're going to say to Yitzchak you're our father, because Yitzchak comes from Avraham. Yitzchak is chesed, is, 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 Avram hailedes Yitzchak, in other words, Avram from chesed comes Yitzchak, which is gvura, and that's higher than Avram himself. So la'asid lava, Yitzchak is going to be the father, because the simcha of la'asid lava is not that we're just going to go back to a neutral state. When Mashiach comes, we're going to be able to see what the gvura was all about. The cloak will be removed and we'll be able to see the depth and the meaning in the agony and then you'll see a far deeper love was expressed in that than the love that's expressed just in an external interaction of positive energy. This is what the Medrash means, we come back, that Pesach and Tishabov are connected. Morer on Pesach, Lana on Tishabov. And the tour tells us in Erechayim Simen Tov Chavches, At Bash, Aleph Tov, Beis Shin. So he says, the first day of Pesach, Aleph, is tough as Tishabov. Tishabov will always be the first day of Pesach. Then Bash, Beis, the second day of Pesach is Shin, is Shvuas. And he goes through. He goes through all of them. Gimel Reish, the third day of Pesach will be Rosh Hashanah. He goes through the letters, how you figure out the whole calendar. Tur, Erechayim, Simen, Tov, Chavches. So it's, you, it's an interesting thing that Tishabov and Pesach are always the same day. At Bash, Aleph, Tov. What's the meaning of this? Now we'll understand the meaning. Essentially, Pesach was an expression of love. Tishabov was an expression of severity, judgment. Pesach represents Avram. And then you have Tishabov, which represents Gvura. But what is that? It's the deeper love. It's the next stage after Pesach. His Biyani Mirvani Lama, which allows Hashem to forego the desire to be externally loving and share something infinitely far deeper through this experience. This answers the question why the three weeks in Tishabov will become Yamim Toivim. The Loi Hanochim in Ayogin Belvad, who Elegili Pnimius Oira Ava Vechesachim is Galil Acher Klois Ayogin, she Avel Yoyna Yosim Megili Ava Shemikoidem. If Tishabov was just a day of negativity, and Shivasa Batamas was just a day of negativity, so when Mashiach comes, it's over. So they're back to normal, neutral days. But what we're explaining here is that those days and those experiences contain within themselves an infinite, transcendent love that is more powerful than any other day. Just like in the discipline that the father disciplines a child, coming from absolute wholesomeness and holiness and calmness and love, 
There's a deeper relationship that is emerging than the relationship that emerges when they're just communicating in an absolutely fine and nice and cordial way. On the contrary, the depth of the discipline is coming only because of the depth of the pain. And the depth of the pain is only coming because of the depth of his caring. And the depth of his caring is only coming because of the depth of his tremendous love. So the depth of the discipline is commensurate always with the depth of the love. It's always the same thing. The question is, what am I getting? What am I experiencing? Am I experiencing only the outer layer? Or am I experiencing the inner core? The child of water is greater than the water. And the child of the water is what seems like darkness. So then back to the Magad. They came to Mara. The water was bitter. What does it mean the water was bitter? They couldn't drink it. Why? They couldn't see the love in the Gvura. They couldn't see the water. The sweetness in the water. They couldn't. Mar represents harsh discipline. Tishabov is called Marer. It's a bitter day. But the core of the Mara, the core of Tishabov, the core of the Mar is Mayim, is, is, is water. Because the darkness came from the water. The cause of the Gvur comes from the deep love because that's the reason he manifested himself and enclosed himself in something called Mara. And then there's somebody who can understand this truthfully. In Mara they didn't understand it. So they couldn't drink the water. And then they came to Elima. Elima is Kelima. They realized that this is really Kel, but it's Ma. It's something beyond the regular comprehension, and therefore they couldn't relate to it. They had to expand their vessels in order to be able to relate to it in a particular way. So therefore, we come now back to the Apterov. That the 21 days between Shivasa Batamas and Tisha B'av, are the source of all the 21 days of all the Yom Tovim. Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, Pesach, Shavuos, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, 21 days, Ach Tov Yisrael. That's why Parshas Pinchas is Bein HaMetzarim. What's the connection? The answer is all of the holidays, beginning with Pesach, represent expressive love. The Bein HaMetzarim represent a whole different type of love, a whole different depth of a relationship. But the tragedy or the challenge is that it's completely eclipsed. And therefore, when one looks at the outer layer of it, one sees calamity, alienation, distress, negativity. Hava lanu ezra smitzar, taiches the maggot. Show me the ezra in the tsar. Allow me to see life, not just to be able to ignore life, to be able to see in my life all the beauty, to see the love in my entire life, to be able to see the meaning in my entire life. So as the generations progress closer and closer to Mashiach, we see that the Chachmei HaKabal and the Chachmei HaChsidis try to pierce through the shell of Bein HaMetzarim. They say that the Heli Kedush and the Bistral Ruzhin and Antishabov, his Chassidim, you know, I guess they were bored or they were, you know, they were, they liked, they liked action. So they had this game in Shul, the night of Tishabov. Whoever would walk into Shul, they had, uh, generally Chassidim were never good at commemorating Tishabov. If you want to have a good Tisha B'Av, 
You have to go to other types of shuls. That's the truth. Hasidim, any, none of them. They were never good. They didn't know how to do it. I once asked Rabbi Adin Steinsatz from Yishlam, where are you going for Tisha B'Av? He says, you have to know, every Yom Tif, you have to know which type of shul to go to. He says, Tisha B'Av, you have to go to a certain type of uh, community in order to experience it. If you want the real thing. If you want. So they say by the Ruzhin, uh, they had this little game that They had this uh, cheer, and you would go in, and uh, it was connected with a rope to the rafters. There were two guys on the rafters, and whoever would come in, they would put him down on the chair. He would sit down on the chair, and there was a rope there, and they would lift up the chair and bring him over the rafters. This was a whole game they had. The Halek Ruzhiner, Bisrael Ruzhiner, was one of the great tzaddikim of the time. He walks into Shul the night of Tisha B'av. Now, they didn't see the people from the face. They just saw them from the back. They didn't realize it's him. So he sits down on the chair. Boom. They lift him up. He comes up. They took a look, and they see the Rebbe of Ruzhin. They mamish wanted to jump down themselves. He smiles little bit, sheds a tear and looks up to heaven and he says, Reboyne shaloylam in Yiddish, as tu as gigeben deine kinder atok tishabov, abichza as eivesenish vitzuas halten, nemes avek von zei. You gave them a day and they don't know how to do it. They just don't know how to treat it with respect. Why don't you just take it away from them? They don't deserve it. So as the generations progress towards Mashiach, the shell the outer garment of the Yimei Beinah Mitzarim are pierced more and more. That one should be able to see not only, or not even so much, the expression of the negativity, but to be able to see the Ava, the tremendous love that exists in these days. So these days is Dafke Parshas Pinchas. The source of all the Yomim Tovim comes from here. Because the external love is fueled and enhanced and invigorated by the true and deepest love that is expressed where? In the opposite garment that comes out in Bein HaMetzarim. And that's why it's going to be a great Yom Tov, the Rambam says. Why is it going to be a great Yom Tov? Because now what we have on Tisha B'Av and the Shavasa B'Tamuz is what? Calamity. And that's why we fast. Because we're in the time of Golos. But what is it really right now? Not what it's going to be in the future. Really, it's a greater holiday than any other holiday. But the way it's being expressed now is through a lavush of pain, a lavush of distress. When the garment is removed, what do you see? You see more charged love, more charged holiness, more charged godliness than any other day of the year. That's why the Medrash says in Psikhtirapsi, ain't simcheba elabetishabov. More than any other day, even more than Pesach. And that's why the Torah says, At Bash, the first day of Pesach, is culminated in Tishabov. His Biyani Bamiroyim is the first step. Hirvani Lana Yirmiyanov, he says, is the next step. So when they came into the Heichel, what did they see? The cherubs, the Kruvim, the Gemara says, in Yuman and Dalit, were hugging each other. Why hugging each other? Why hugging each other? This is the moment of the greatest alienation. On one level, yes, it's also the moment of the greatest intimacy. It's the moment of the greatest connection, the greatest intimacy. That's why the Bnei Yisoscha brings B'Shem the Magad that the Arizal says, it's brought in, in Arachayim, in Hilchas Tishabov, we say Nachim on Tishabov. Why? Because Mashiach is born on Tishabov. What does it mean he was born on Tishabov? So it's brought from the Magad of Mizrich that when the Chkruvim Urin Zebazeh, that was intimacy. The Gemara says in Yavam is Chayev Adam Before a husband leaves, he has, to have, uh, he has to be with his wife. Before Hashem was leaving on a long journey, he was connecting to the Bnei Yisrael in the deepest level. And from that intimacy is conceived the seed of Gula, the seed of Mashiach. That's on Tisha B'av. So on one level, it's the time of ultimate alienation and Khurban. On another level, it's the time of the deepest intimacy because in that din, you have deeper love than regular love. And that's why the father would forego 
his natural inclination to just be generous and giving and say, yes, 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 why would he forego that natural inclination and sacrifice himself? Only because the love is so deep. And this is how it's expressed. So therefore, dafke then the kruvim more ravim zebazeh. The Pasuk says in Eicha, Kol It's called Bein HaMetzarim. All of the pursuers of the Jewish people found her, Bein HaMetzarim, between the boundaries, between the borders. Because the borders were so narrow, the Jews were, were caged in. So whoever wanted to get them, it was easy to get because they couldn't disperse. Kol That's why it's called Bein HaMetzarim, between the borders. The Mezir Shemagid said, Kol Whoever is chasing after God... You could find him. The way you could find Hashem, you could find him in a way that you can't find him any other time of the year. Because if you really want to connect to your father and mother, that moment, when you think is the moment of alienation, it's really the greatest moment of love. So that's when you could connect to them in the deepest way. When you look your father in his eyes then, and you tell him something, you want to connect to him, oh, will he be connected? Because he's completely present, more even kevayachal than he's present any other time. He's sigur ben amatzar. The Mari V'shemesh, Kalman Epstein, the student of the Noyam Ali Melech, writes in the name of his Rebbe, in the name of the Magadah, the Shabbosis of the Ben Amitzarim, the three Shabbosis of the three weeks are greater than any of the other Shabbos of the year. Why? Because the Shabbos of the three weeks, you don't fast, and there's no mourning, and there's no grievance. This year, Tisha of Yasabatamas, everybody ate. And Tisha B'Av Shechali is B'Shabbos, everybody ate. He eats. It says in Shulchan Aruch, in Arachayim, Kisudah Shleimah B'Shaita, you can eat. You can eat like Shleimah Melech's meals. So on one hand, it's the middle of the three weeks. On the other hand, it's a day of Simchit. So it's a foretaste of the three weeks transformed into joy. So it's greater than any other Shabbos of the whole year because it's already an expression of that love that comes out, that will come out when Mashiach comes, that the Rambam says, at the end of Hilchas Tainis will be transformative. Based on all of this, we now come back to the debate in Masech Tebcheres. Reb David, you halting up? Okay. So now we now come back. They bring out two eggs. Why two eggs? Says the Marsha, you know how long it takes for an egg to hatch? Anybody here has a farmer, Munsi? Anybody? What's the lifespan of an egg? The mother hen sits on the egg, warms it in a very delicate balance. She can't sit too hard because she'll crack the egg and kill her chick. On the other hand, she has to warm it up. How long does she sit on the egg until... The shell breaks and a lovely new life, a chick emerges and uh, the shell just goes to waste. How long? Three weeks. The lifespan of an egg is three weeks. That's how long usually conventionally takes to hatch. In other words, 21 days. They brought Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya two eggs. In other words, two lifespans of 21 days. Two eggs. Both look the same, 21 days. But one came from a black hen, and one came from a white hen. Those are two sets of 21 days in the Jewish calendar. The 21 days that come from a black hen are the 21 days of the three weeks, from they come from a black hen in the sense that they were born, they emerged from a black chicken. 
from a dark experience, from calamity, from distress. But there's another egg, another lifespan of 21 days that came from a white hen. And that represents, the Marsha says, 21 days from Rosh Hashanah through Hashanah Rabbah. Hashanah Rabbah is the 21st day of Tishrei. That finishes one era of Tishrei from Rosh Hashanah through Hashanah Rabbah, 21 days. This comes from a black hen. This comes from a white hen. These are days of, of empowerment, days of joy. They include Sukkot, Zman Simchaseinu. They include Hashanah Rabbah. They include Rosh Hashanah. They include Yom Kippur. They include Asar Simei Tshuva. They're days of renewal, Ischachos, days of Tshuva, and days ultimately of great Simcha, Sukkot, Zman Simchaseinu. And they turn to the great sage of Yeshua and they say, Hakirna, which egg comes from where? I can't know. You know why you can't know? Because they're identical. Ah, what does this mean? This means that evil is as powerful as good. Blackness is as powerful as whiteness. Darkness is equivalent to light. Look, in your own calendar, you don't even have one extra day for joy than you have for calamity. And if you want to add the Apterov's Cheshben, you could say, what's the second egg? All the 21 Yomim Toivim. Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, seven days of Pesach, one day of Shavuos, two days of Rosh Hashanah, one day of Yom Kippur, eight days of Sukkot, 21. So your 21 days of calamity are completely, exactly equivalent with your 21 days of celebration. Two eggs. And you can't even recognize the difference. Because they're identical. They're both 21 days. And what he's bringing out to Rabbi Shoma in a very vivid and graphic way is that there's no more power to good than there is to evil. The world is a random place. You flip the quarter, you lift up, you throw up the quarter, sometimes it lands heads and sometimes it lands tails. The cookie crumbles for different people, different times and different ways, which was a major idea in Greek philosophy. The world is ultimately random. And sometimes the weak are successful. Sometimes they perish. Usually they perish. It's everything is random luck. Everything is equal. Everything is equivalent. What is more? What is more? They turn to Rabbi Yishobachanan and they say, look at your nation. You used to claim that you have a glorious destiny and a glorious mission in this world. You were liberated from Egypt you were chosen by God as his people. He gave you a Torah. He led you through the desert. He took you into Israel. He gave you two Batei Mikdash. You were flying high. You were on top of the world. Chosen nation. But look at you now. Remember, this is Rabbi Shubachanani survived the Churban. He saw it. Look at you. You were destroyed. You were massacred. It's not over yet, but it's getting there. It's not dark yet. But it's getting there. Your 21 days of calamity have completely canceled out and obliterated your 21 days of celebration. I know you have 20 days of Yom Tif. Pesach, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Shavuos, Atavich Artonim Mikola Amim, Sukkos, Laman Yehidu Dere Seichim Ki Besukkos, Eishavtiz Bnei Zobah, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Tzua Yiyelachem, Yom Kippur, Belifnei Hashem Titoru, Bayom Hazei Yechapar Aleichem. Got it! But look now, you just had three weeks. You just had a Shiva Sabatamuz. You just had a Tishabov. You had a Khurban and a real Khurban. Millions, millions, exiled, destroyed, crushed, massacred. You lost your, your sovereignty, you lost your political independence, you lost your army, you lost your government, you lost your spiritual epicenter, the base Amikdash, you lost everything. You are now basically Korait Face, you go by the time you are a downtrodden, dejected nation, hopeless. 
Your 21 days of calamity have canceled out your 21 days of grace. One egg is not distinguishable anymore from the other egg. Any egg is as recognizable as the other egg because there's no power to the first once you have the second. It's not greater, it's not more significant. This, the Marsha says, is what they told Rabbi Shobachemani. It's all in that word. They took out two eggs and they said, which egg comes from which? Now, Rabbi Shobachemani understood this. <laughs> he understood that he didn't have to have a two-hour shear. That's why he was Rabbi Shobachemani. What did he do? He took out two pieces of cheese. And he said, you see these two pieces of cheese? They come from two goats. They come from two goats. A black and a white. But both pieces of cheese are white. Now tell me, which cheese come from which goat? What was he saying? You're telling me that both eggs, are indis- the two eggs are indistinguishable. The white egg that comes from the white hen is indistinguishable from the white egg that comes from the black hen. And I'm telling you here is two pieces of cheese. They both come from different goats, black and white, and yet they're both white. Even the one that comes from the black goat is also white. What was he intimating? Says the Marsha, he was talking about what? The two goats of Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, the Pasuk says in Parshas Achirimais, we offer two goats. One goat goes into the Holy of Holies. It represents that which is taken into the place that is the most sacred on earth. And the Aaron, the Koyan would make, a, the Koyan God would do a girl a lot. He would cast a lot. One goat was slaughtered and the blood once a year was taken into the Kodesh HaKadoshim and its blood was sprinkled. Achas Lamaila, V'sheva Lamata. And then on the Parachas, or against the Parachas, and on the Mizbeach, the internal Mizbeach. This was the holy goat. Soyul Hashem, God's goat. But there was another goat. And this goat acquired its name in English from the Pasuk and Achirimais. We call it the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is the goat that he puts on it all of the sins. It's as dirty as you can get. It has a lot. All the blackness, all the toxicity, all the chatoyim, transgressions, sins, mistakes, you put it all on that goat, poor goat, what it was carrying. You know, you look at two people, one looks like one goat and one looks like the other goat. What's the message in the second goat? A goat can carry away your sins, really? The message is a very deep message. What's, it's a very strange ritual. I mean, the Mepharshim struggle with this. It looks like a little bit pagan, the Ramban says. It looks uh, very strange. It's like you take this goat, you put your sins on the goat, you send it down a mountain. What's going to happen? There's a very deep symbolism in this goat. And that is the greatest mistake that people make is they identify sin with themselves. I am sin. I don't make a mistake. I am a mistake. I don't do wrong things. I am wrong. Some people, when they heard from their father or mother or husband or wife or shviger or shver or mechanech or shishiv or rebbe, whatever, you did so and so, what they hear is, I always do so and so. I could never get it right. I am the mistake. The symbolism of the goat of Azazel is, you could take all your sins and put it on something else that goes away. It's not me. It, it, it's in me. It affects me. It exists in my psyche, but it's not me. You can distinguish yourself from it. That symbolism itself is priceless. Some people don't even realize how deep this runs in their system. That sin is entrenched in them so deeply, they don't think there's a part of them that is out of it. I am a sin. Ich bin schmutzig. I am essentially filthy. 
That's the worst filth. Your worst mistake is that you think that. <laughs> That's your mistake. All Everything else, it's toxic, it's negative. You could take it off. You can extricate yourself from it. You send the goat, and the goat you cast away. That's the symbol. And it goes down a mountain, and it gets shattered because that's really what it is. It's just brokenness. It makes you believe that is your essence, but it's really just brokenness. And they tied to the horn of this goat, the Marsha says from the Mishnah and Yuma, a red scarlet string. And what happens when they came there? The Mishnah says in Masech Yuma, it would transform its color into white. As the Pasuk says, If your sins might be like scarlet red, they will become white as snow. So you have two goats. And conceptually, they are black and white. Conceptually. One represents the blackness of the person, and one represents the whiteness of the person. One carries all of the sins of the person, and one carries all of the whiteness of the person. One is invited into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, to the Oren, it gets elevated, Reyach Nichayach, in the most sublime and holy way, more than any other offering, and one is cast away to the Azazel mountain, carrying all the shmutzikait, all the filth and the dirt and the garbage and the gravel and the negativity and the toxicity and the venom that exists in the world. And yet, says the Marsha, both goats produce white cheese. Even the black goat, its color red was transformed into red. Even the black goat, what was its purpose? Its purpose was to bring out cleansing, to bring out atonement. It brought out the purity of a person. It brought out the holiness of a person. It brought out the fact that I am not my sin. I am not my mistake. I am not my evil. I am not my toxicity. Essentially, I am wholesome, sacred, confident, optimistic and beautiful. Essentially, I'm always in a state of well-being. And it's always there. It was always there. It can never be taken away. It can never be tarnished. It's always there and it can always, it's always preserved. Everything else is additional. It's attached to me. So even the second goat, as black as it was, superficially black, but internally, what was its message? Its message was that there is atonement, there's forgiveness, there's remedy, there's healing, there's recreation, there's truva, there's repentance. Both goats produce beautiful white cheese. One as white as the other. You can't say, oh, this cheese is not so white. It's black. It's as white. Why? Because the blackness is not as black as you think. The blackness really has within itself the potentiality for rejuvenation, for reinvigoration, for renaissance, for a new sense of whiteness. That's the second goat. So Rabbi Yeshua Hananya comes back to them and he says, now look at the two eggs. You know why they're indistinguishable? Not because evil is as powerful as good. And not because our calamities have canceled out our moments of grace. Because in the Jewish Weltanschauung, in the Jewish perspective... Darkness is really another form of light. You know why the black egg, that the egg that comes from the black hen is as white as the egg that comes from the white hen? Because even the blackness has a whiteness to it. It's not that darkness is as powerful as light. It's that light is as powerful as light. Because darkness is just another form of light. Everything is light. There's just two forms of light. There's light that appears as light. And there's light that appears as darkness. And as Isaiah says, you have to be mahapich. You have to be able to excavate. 
and transform the darkness into light and the bitterness into sweetness. So everything is light. The question is what I'm seeing. Sometimes I see light as light, and sometimes I see a much deeper light. And when I see a deeper light, what does it look like? It looks like darkness because it's too deep for my eyes to be able to wrap myself around. It's Elima. It's Elima. It's Kelima. It's Shem Elikim Midas Hadin. But what is the inside of Elikim? Keli Chesed Ma. But I say what? I don't see it. In fact, sometimes I see the opposite. So this darkness comes with a mission. It comes with a calling. And the calling is here. Go deeper into me. And transform me into light. So therefore, the two eggs are indistinguishable. So therefore, the days of calamity are equal to the days of Yom Tov. You know why? On the contrary, because the days of Yom Tov come from the days of calamity. They're really one energy. It's really one energy of tremendous love, of tremendous light. The question is, if it's light that appears as light, or it's light that the human being needs to be able to reveal the light that exists in the darkness. That's a whole different form of light. So therefore, therefore, the three weeks to sum up, I think, to give an example of, a very nice example, I think, of modern physics would be that the three weeks are like the black hole in physics that they talk about today in physics. The black holes are filled with endless light, tremendous amount of light, but they don't allow it to escape its pull. Because basically a black hole is a region, it's a region of space in which the gravitational field is so powerful that nothing, including light, can escape its pull. So therefore, the gravitation is so powerful that it doesn't allow the light to come out at all. Not be, so what, what do we call, we call it a black hole. It's completely dark. Not because there's no light, Actually, because the light doesn't get scattered, the light doesn't get emitted, the light doesn't go out in all directions, the light is so focused, it's so concentrated, it's so intense, the pull is so powerful that there's more light than anywhere else. And because there's more light than anywhere else, therefore, when we look at it, the light doesn't come out, we call it a black hole. So for the one who doesn't understand the depth of reality, all they see is blackness. But somebody who looks a step deeper knows that the light over there is far deeper. So the job of the Jewish people is to penetrate the black hole and reveal the inner light, which is the light of Mashiach. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.